Hi, this is Chris Date, and you're listening to the The Apologetics Podcast. Episode 31, Just Dropped In. Well, it's been two months and five episodes since I last taught in an episode all on my own. I very much enjoyed interviewing Greg Kokel, Steve Hamm, Jim Wallace, Mike Abendroth, and Scott Klusendorf, and I'm very, very thankful that they shared their thoughts with us, but I can tell you it's good to be going it solo again. Uh, well, or at least it's good for me, perhaps not so much for you. Now today we're going to look at the doctrine of the total depravity of man, the first of the five so-called points of Calvinism. But before we get into that, I was recently listening to a show I enjoy, and which I'll be adding to my promo rotation beginning next episode. It's called Real Apologetics with Jamin Hubner, which you can find at www.realapologetics.com. As a side note, by the way, Jamin has agreed to let me interview him on the topic of inerrancy, so be looking forward to that episode. Anyway, Jamin is a presuppositional apologist uh, and is critical of the apologetic approach of my guest from episode 28, Jim Wallace, who describes himself as an evidentialist. Now, he listened to my interview with Jim, in in which Jim and I briefly uh, talked about presuppositionalism versus evidentialism, and Jamin commented on some of that interaction in the latest episode of his podcast. You can check that out for yourself. I won't give anything away except to say that I'm very thankful that Jamin went easy on me. But the real reason I bring this up is because I found myself laughing when Jamin struggled to pronounce the name of my podcast. You might recall several episodes ago that I played some outtakes from my friend Dee Dee Warren's podcast where she too struggled to pronounce the apologetics. We'll listen to Jamin's admirable attempt. The first thing we're going to do is just review a interview between Chris Date of Theol Apologetics, or if I said, let me see if I said that right, Theopologetics, uh, interviewing Jim Wallace. And so this interview uh, comes comes from the podcast of Theolo- Theopologetics. You know, over a year ago when I started my blog, for some reason I thought that the name Theopologetics rolled off the tongue very easily. And I thought that I'd come up with a quite clever combination of the words theology and apologetics, two things that I'm obviously very passionate about, a passion with which I hope to infect my listeners. But the more and more that I'm thinking about it, you know, while I get a kick out of seeing others stumble over pronouncing the apologetics, at the same time it makes me wonder if perhaps it might be wiser to come up with something better. My wife doesn't think that I should, and maybe that's enough uh, of a reason to keep it the way it is, but it's something I'm going to be pondering for a while, and if you have an opinion you'd like, uh, an opinion you'd like to share with me, you can email me at theapologetics at hotmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. Now, in that episode I mentioned of the Preterist podcast, something Dee Dee said gave me an idea I find kind of appealing. You know, I am yet undecided on my four-volume treatise, The All-Yam Diet for Vigor and Longevity. Hmm. <laughs> oh, and yes, I will be doing some book reviews, as I had previously promised. So now, a date with Chris the powerlifting apologist. And I have some yams to cook. The powerlifting apologist. You know, I kind of like that. (laughs) Maybe one day I'll change the podcast name to that. Or maybe not. Speaking of powerlifting, I mentioned after my last competition in December that I was going to begin training for the Washington State Championships in March. 
But I put that off for too long, and I'm only now just beginning to get back into serious training. And so I'm going to wait until next year to compete at state. And this year, I'm just going to train for the YMCA Seattle Summer Classic, which is in June. And as I mentioned before, I'm going to try to lose enough weight to compete in the next lighter weight class, which means that I've got about four months or so to lose something on the order of 40 pounds. So please keep me in your prayers. And if you want to follow me as I train, you can check out chrisdatepower.blogspot.com. You can also find pictures and videos of my uh, two previous competitions. And I'd love to hear from you if you want to encourage me or cheer me on. If, on the other hand, you just want to tell me how weak that I am, (laughs) well, I don't want to hear from you. So you can just keep your emails to yourselves. Next up in my promo rotation is Mary Jo Sharp's Confident Christianity Podcast. Hello, welcome to the Confident Christianity Podcast. Grace and peace to you. I'm Mary Jo Sharp, the founder of Confident Christianity Apologetics Ministry. I'm glad you could join me as we spur Christians on to maturity and unity in Christ while discussing the difficult questions about belief in God. Mary Jo hasn't published an episode in a while as she's been very busy, but what she's published so far is enjoyable and useful, and I recommend it, uh, I recommend it to you, as well as other resources that she's made available at ConfidentChristianity.com. Also, Mary Jo has agreed to appear on my show, tentatively to talk about women and apologetics, and we've got that interview scheduled for next Wednesday, March 2nd. So I guess I'll have only squeezed one self-taught episode in before returning to more interviews, you know, which maybe you'd prefer anyway, with upcoming guests like Mary Jo Sharp, Jamin Hubner, and hopefully Dr. James White. I wouldn't blame you. <laughs> now with that, let's move into today's topic and drop in to see what condition the human condition is in. I just dropped in to see what condition my condition was in. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, what condition my condition was in. I pushed I took a look at the CNN homepage this morning, and I read that Gaddafi is threatening to execute protesters. A Florida police officer was shot, the third in uh, recent, uh, recent history. Americans on a hijacked yacht were killed by pirates. And the Kardashians went wild for Kim's 30th birthday. On the MSNBC homepage, I read that a body handler from Mexican gangs confessed to dissolving at least 300 bodies of drug cartel victims. And a 13-year-old recalled a nightmare kidnapping. And Fox News reports that a 10-year-old girl's stepmother has been charged with murdering the child whose head is missing from her body. Even within my own home, as a parent of three sons, I've been shocked by human nature. You know, I've heard it said that mankind is basically good, or at least neutral, and that kids have to be taught how to be evil, but I suspect that any parent knows how truly absurd that statement is. It's become uh, very evident to me that quite the opposite is true. Mankind is basically evil, and kids have to be taught how to be good. Their nature is to lie, to manipulate, to disobey, to hurt one another, to be selfish, and so on and so forth. It seems every child in our neighborhood enjoys nothing more than teasing, harassing, pushing around, and otherwise generally mistreating my children. And other kids at their school uh, get away with treating them in some of these ways, too. No, mankind is not basically good or neutral. The Bible teaches and the church has historically taught that man bears the stain of original sin and from the womb desires to do evil. Yet, somehow many Christians today think that human beings in this state of sinfulness are capable of turning to Christ in repentance and for forgiveness of sins. 
This is the question we're going to be examining today as we look at the first of the five so-called points of Calvinism, total depravity. And to begin, what I'd like to do is give you an introductory look at the history behind the five points, as I think it will help define the doctrine of total depravity, and it may surprise you. Several things might surprise you, in fact, including that the five points of Calvinism were formulated well after the death of John Calvin. Conversely, and perhaps just as surprisingly, the debate between Calvinists and Arminians existed in various forms before John Calvin and Jacobus Arminius were ever born. But what might surprise you most of all is that when it comes to the Calvinism debate, it is on this doctrine of total depravity that Arminians have historically agreed. Now before I dive into this, if, if you're more knowledgeable than I am of church history and the Reformation in particular, please let me know if I make any mistakes. This is new to me, so I'm sort of flying by the seat of my pants. Anyway, from what I can gather from that ultra-authoritative source, which is Wikipedia, here is the historical background of the five points. Leading up to the Protestant Reformation, a debate over human free will was raging between followers of Thomas Aquinas, who believed man doesn't have the ability to do good without first being infused with grace by God, and followers of William of Ockham, who rejected Aquinas' view on the grounds that it destroys man's free will, insisting instead that God rewards grace to those who do the best that they can do. This issue of human free will is what Martin Luther called the essential issue or the vital spot of the Protestant Reformation. He rejected the Occamist position and argued that man does not have the ability to do good, saying, After the fall, free will is something in name only, and when it does what is in it, it sins mortally. He wrote in On the Bondage of the Free Will that man's fallen nature is in bondage to sin and to Satan, and that the only way one could be saved is if God chooses to grant somebody faith. This position is what was adopted by the Protestant movement. Now, John Calvin also affirmed the total depravity of man and started to become instrumental to the Protestant Reformation in the latter years of Martin Luther's life. Calvin played a key role in the confessional and ecclesiastical debates of the 16th century and was an early leader of the Reformed churches whose doctrine of salvation is, as a result, now called Calvinism. He taught, in part because man was totally depraved, that God's choice to save the elect cannot be based on anything the elect do or believe but instead that their belief is the inevitable result of God's choice. Jacobus Arminius, a Dutch pastor born just five years before John Calvin died, rejected unconditional election as taught by the Protestant churches, insisting instead that election referred to God's choosing to save those he knew beforehand would freely place their faith in Christ in response to a grace that God gives all men. Arminius and his followers wanted a national synod to, convert, uh, to confer to consider their views, but Arminius, uh, sorry, Arminius died before that would happen. Some three months after Arminius died, his followers, calling themselves the Remonstrants, wrote the Five Articles of Remonstrance in January 1610. Sorry, yeah, yeah, January 1610. Almost nine years later, Arminius's desire for a national synod became a reality, and in 1618 and 1619, the National Synod of Dort reviewed the Five Articles of Remonstrance. The synod's judgments, known as the Canons of Dort, are today summarized by the five points of Calvinism, which contradict the five articles of remonstrance on almost every point. But as I said, what is perhaps surprising is that it is this first point of Calvinism, the one we're discussing today, which least disagrees with the articles of remonstrance. In fact, I think it seems to me that they are in agreement, which amazes me since most people I've debated Calvinism with deny the total depravity of man. Listen to what the Articles of Remonstrance said, quote, Man has not, saving grace of himself, 
nor of the energy of his free will, inasmuch as he, in the state of apostasy and sin, can of and by himself neither think, will, nor do anything that is truly good, such as having faith eminently is, but that it is needful that he be born again of God in Christ through his Holy Spirit, and renewed in understanding, inclination, or will, and all his powers, in order that he may rightly understand, think, will, and effect what is truly good according to the word of Christ. And then they quote uh, John chapter 15, verse 5, without me you can do nothing. So what the remonstrants were saying was that man is totally depraved, unable to do or think anything good unless God does a work inside him first. That's total depravity. And in fact, the canons issued by the Synod of Dort don't appear to disagree all that much. They said, quote, All people are conceived in sin and are born children of wrath, unfit for any saving good, inclined to evil, dead in their sins, and slaves to sin. Without the grace of the regenerating Holy Spirit, they are neither willing nor able to return to God to reform their distorted nature, or even to dispose themselves to such reform. Unquote. So the language of both the Articles of Remonstrance and the Canons of Dort they, they seem so similar to me that I'm not convinced the followers of Arminius disagreed with the Synod of Dort on this particular point. Now, where they did disagree was on each of the other Articles of Remonstrance, which we'll look at in future episodes when we look at the other points of Calvinism. But for now, we're going to look at the T in TULIP, which stands for total depravity, a position apparently shared by Arminians and Calvinists alike. But first, since I mentioned that the Calvinism versus Arminianism debate extends further back in time than Calvin or Arminius, let's go back still further in church history to the early 5th century and the debate between Pelagius and Augustine. In the first few centuries following Christ, the church was focused on defending Christian doctrines, including the Trinity, the deity of Christ, and the canon of Scripture. But by the time of Augustine, grace and free will became topics of debate, one on which Augustine weighed in heavily. He contributed greatly to the doctrine known now as original sin, teaching that all humans inherit the guilt of Adam's sin, are utterly depraved in nature, lack the freedom to do good, and cannot respond to the will of God without God's grace. A couple of years before the beginning of the 5th century, St. Augustine wrote a very popular autobiogra autobiography called Confessions, and he wrote something that tradition says proved to be quite controversial. In Book 10 of Confessions, Augustine wrote this, Woe is me! Lord, have pity on me! My evil sorrows contend with my good joys, and on which side the victory may be I know not. Is not the life of man upon the earth a temptation? Who is he that wishes for vexations and difficulties? Thou commandest them to be endured, not to be loved. And my whole hope is only in thy exceeding great mercy. Give what thou commandest, and command what thou wilt. Thou imposest con continency upon us, Nevertheless, when I perceived, saith one, that I could not otherwise obtain her except God gave her me, that was a point of wisdom also to know whose gift she was. Unquote. Now, in case you missed it, let me, let me break that down a bit for you. August, Augustine was talking about the misery of human life, that it is constant temptation and that God commands us to endure. Then, after expressing hope only in the mercy of God, Augustine says, Give what thou commandest and command what thou wilt. That's how the traditional translation renders it. And here's another uh, one that's perhaps more well known. Grant what you command and command what you will. Augustine repeated this prayer three more times in this book of confessions. And the implications are clear. God is free to issue commands which we are bound to obey. But we are incapable of obeying them unless God grants to us that we obey. 
Augustine then goes on to quote the deuterocanonical book, The Wisdom of Solomon, which, like Proverbs chapters 8 and 9, speaks of wisdom as personified by a woman, saying, I perceived that I could not otherwise obtain her except God gave her me, and that was a point of wisdom also to know whose gift she was. So Augustine is saying that just as this apocryphal book depicts wisdom as being a gift from God, so too is the ability to obey his commands. Now, as I said, this proved to be quite controversial. Pelagius was passionate about holiness, emphasizing the importance of morals and godliness in contrast with society's low standards of morality. Pelagius objected to Augustine's repeated prayer and confessions, asking how God would command us to do anything we're not capable of doing ourselves. In Pelagius's view, Adam's sin set an example men often follow, but men are born innocent and were it not for their environment, they could be good. Good in and of themselves, by their own strength. In effect, man is capable of effecting his own salvation. Now, Pelagius was condemned as a heretic at the Council of Carthage in 418 AD, and Augustine's teaching on grace was considered the orthodox view in the Western Church through the Middle Ages. But within that Augustinian context, there arose within the Church a sort of compromise which became known as semi-Pelagianism. According to semi-Pelagianism, Pelagius was at one extreme in his view of human nature, but Augustine was at the other, uh, opposite extreme, and the truth was found somewhere in between. It is true, man is not inherently good or even neutral, he is sick, with a fatal sickness which results in death if not cured, but even in that inherent state of sickness, man is still capable of exercising free will in placing his faith in Jesus Christ. This view was also condemned as heresy at the Second Council of Orange in 529. Now, I wanted to give all of this historical context not only to illustrate that the debate began long before Calvin and Arminius, but also to demonstrate that many modern critics of Calvinism are not really Arminians, because they deny the doctrine of total depravity that Arminius and his followers apparently affirmed in the Articles of the Remonstrance. No, modern critics of Calvinism, or so it seems to me anyway, based on my meager experience, won't even go that far and instead insist that although man is stained somehow by original sin, born with a tendency to do evil, he is nevertheless capable of placing his faith in Jesus Christ as an exercise of his own free will. So, whose view does scripture support? Are Calvinists and Arminians correct, inciting <laughs> with Augustine, Luther, Calvin, and Arminius, affirming that man is totally depraved, unable to do good and turn to Christ on their own accord? Or... Are either Pelagians or semi-Pelagians, many of which exist today, are they right in saying that to whatever extent man is affected by sin, he nevertheless has the capacity on his own to turn to Christ? That is the question that we'll look at now. It's important that in answering this question, we go back to the beginning and look at the first couple that God created, Adam and Eve. Genesis 1, 26-27 and 31 reads, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his, in, his own image, in the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. So now notice a couple of things. First, on this sixth day of creation, God created man in his own image. Now that can be understood in a few different ways. Of course, it can't be understood to mean what Mormons think it does, but that's the subject of another episode. But whatever it means, this will prove important shortly. Second, leading up to this pinnacle of creation, God had repeatedly said that what he had created was good. After creating light on day one, after gathering the waters into one place, uh, revealing dry land and creating vegetation on day three, 
after creating the sun, moon, and stars on day four, after creating sea creatures and birds on day five, and after creating land animals early on day six. But later on day six, after creating man and woman, God didn't merely see that it was good, he saw that it was very good. Now, as we continue through this episode, you're going to hear me quote the Word of God where it says some pretty negative things about humanity, to, to put it mildly. And as you listen to those statements from Scripture, I want you to think back to this first chapter of Genesis and ask yourself if what was true of man later in the biblical record was also true of Adam and Eve, would God really have called it very good? I don't think so. Uh, combined with the fact that Adam and Eve were said to have been created in God's image, that that God called it very good suggests very strongly, I think, that they were created without sin, without any propensity for evil. In fact, the NASB rendering of Ecclesiastes 7.29 says, God made men upright, but they have sought out many devices. Now, I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but it looks to me like the word translated men, Adam, is in a singular. Therefore, the author is not saying God creates all individuals upright but rather that God created man upright. Hence, the NIV reads, God created mankind upright. And the word translated upright is yashar, which means right, pleasing, correct, just, righteous. Uh, in fact, the word is used in Deuteronomy 6.18 to say, you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord. So we see that Adam and Eve were created pure, without an inclination to disobey God. Here's what John Gill had to say of Genesis 1.31. It had been said of everything else at the close of each day's work, excepting the second, that it was good. But here the expression is stronger upon the creation of man, the chief and principal work of God, that it was very good. He being made upright and holy, bearing the image of his creator upon him, and in such circumstances as to be happy and comfortable himself and to glorify God. Unquote. So, uh, of course, most of us know what happened soon after that. Eve was enticed by the serpent to eat the fruit which God had forbidden, and Adam followed suit. Although they were created sinless and without an inherent desire to do evil, they nevertheless were tempted and succumbed to the lies of Satan. As a consequence, they were ejected from the garden, cursed, and they began to physically die. But what effect, if any, did Adam's, Adam's and Eve's sin have on their progeny, their descendants? I mentioned earlier that the fact that man was created in God's image would prove important shortly thereafter. Well, perhaps I overstated it a little bit, but the first thing worth noting is that whereas God created Adam and Eve in his image, Genesis 5, 1-3 says, after reiterating man's having been created in God's image, goes on to say that in contrast, Seth was born in Adam's image and likeness. It might seem as though the distinction isn't all that important, but if man continued to bear God's image to the full extent he once did... Why would Paul say in Ephesians 4.24 that we are to put on the new self which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth? There would be no need to put on what we already bear. Now this is not to say we don't reflect the image of God at all. I mean, After all, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11.7 that man is the image and glory of God. But whereas Adam was originally created in God's image, Adam's descendants bear his image, Adam's image, which is a flawed and fallen reflection of God's. In fact, in the passage from Ephesians I mentioned a moment ago, Paul contrasts the new self created in God's image with the old sinful nature which is corrupted by lust and deception. So Adam's progeny bears a corrupted, stained, tarnished image of God. The Geneva Study Bible from 1599 picks up on this, pointing out in Genesis 5.3 that Seth's being born in Adam's image concerns not only his creation, but his corruption. 
John Gill writes, Having sinned, Adam lost the image of God, at least it was greatly defaced, and he came short of that glory of God and could not convey it to his posterity, who are, and ever have been, conceived in sin and shaped in iniquity. John Wesley, who, by the way, was an Arminian, wrote of this passage that Adam was made in the image of God, but when he was fallen and corrupted, he begat, he begat a son in his own image, sinful and defiled, frail and mortal, and miserable like himself, a sinner like himself, guilty and obnoxious, degenerate and corrupt. He was conceived and born in sin. Now, did John Gill and John Wesley overstate what it means to bear Adam's image, which is a corrupted, defaced reflection of God's? Well, look what Paul says in Romans 5.19. Through Adam's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Notice that it is not one's sins that make him a sinner. It's Adam's sin that makes one a sinner. And the Greek word translated sinner, hamartolas, means devoted to sin, preeminently sinful, especially wicked. You see, it is not that we are sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. And we're sinners from conception because we are conceived in Adam's image. In fact, in Psalm 51.5, the psalmist writes, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Note that it cannot be argued that David's mother is the one whose sin is mentioned here, since the context throughout the psalm is David asking for God's mercy toward himself, not anybody else, let alone his mother. Also, Psalm 58.3 says, The wicked are estranged from the womb. These who speak lies go astray from birth. So, since Adam... Humans are sinners from conception, inclined toward evil. But just how disposed toward evil are we? Well, by Genesis 6-5, the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. After the flood, that hasn't changed, because in Genesis 8-21, God says, the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. Jeremiah 17-9 reads, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Titus 1.15 says to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. Paul says in Romans 7.18 that I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. Jesus says in Matthew 15.19 that from out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, slanders. Perhaps most uh, striking, Paul says in Romans 3.9-18, are all under sin, or all are under sin, as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands, there is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good, there is not even one. Their throat is an open grave, with their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now much more could be brought to bear, but the point of all this is that with the exception of Christ, which you know we'll look at in another, in another episode, all descendants of Adam are from conception inclined toward evil. They have wicked and deceitful hearts, and are all defiled in mind and conscience. There is none who does good, there is not even one. But as hopefully was clear when I was explaining the history of the five points of Calvinism, the doctrine of total depravity says something profoundly more than just men are born very evil. It goes further, saying that man is so evil that he will not, of his own volition, choose to turn to God for forgiveness. In other words, when Jesus says in John 3.16 that whoever believes in Jesus shall not perish but have eternal life, while true, the doctrine of total depravity says that man is so evil 
that he will never choose to believe in Jesus Christ if left to his own devices. As the Synod of Dort put it, without the grace of the regenerating Holy Spirit, they are neither willing nor able to return to God to reform their distorted nature or even to dispose themselves to such reform. While the passages we've looked at so far make a compelling case that we are very, very sinful from conception, uh, perhaps they don't justify this additional leap. So let's take a look at some passages which I do think justify this leap. Jeremiah 13.23 says, Can an Ethiopian change the color of his skin? Can a leopard take away its spots? Neither can you start doing good, for you have always done evil. The passages we've looked at make the case that we are evil from conception, so Jeremiah's words here apply equally to everyone. Born sinners, inclined toward evil, we can't start doing good, which, you know, turning to Christ obviously is, any more than a leopard can take away its spots. That this inability to change our ways extends to turning to God is clear in Isaiah 64, 7, which reads, No one calls on your name or strives to lay hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have given us over to our sins. And in the passage we looked at a moment ago in Romans 3.11, Paul says, No one seeks for God. A listener and I have been debating Calvinism over email. He's been very friendly and respectful, and I've enjoyed the debate. Hopefully he feels I've been, uh, that I've reciprocated that friendliness and respect. In a recent email, he wrote, If you're a skydiver, you put your faith in a parachute. If you're a race car driver, you put faith in your brakes. If you're a passenger on an airplane, you put your faith in the pilot. And if you want eternal life, you put your faith in Christ. Simple as that. Well, yeah, it is as simple as that. But these passages we've looked at tell us that nobody wants eternal life. At least not if it means turning to God. As Paul said, no one seeks for God. And as Isaiah said, no one calls on your name or strives to lay hold of you. In fact, it's not just that we don't seek God, we are his enemies. Romans 5.10 says, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Colossians 1.21 says, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. We hate God. Romans 1.30 calls the unbelieving haters of God. And again, this is all by nature. Ephesians 2.3 calls believers formerly by nature children of wrath. Jesus was even more explicit, calling unbelievers children of the devil in John chapter 8. You see, nobody chooses to turn to Christ for forgiveness, not of their own volition, left to their own devices, because they love evil and hate God. But then, how can anybody turn to Christ? The answer to this question is the doctrine of regeneration. In Ezekiel 36, 26-27, God says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove, remove the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. Note that Israel's uh, obedience is the result of the inward work of God, which he does first. This is regeneration, God metaphorically replacing the sinner's heart of stone with a heart of flesh, resulting in that sinner turning to Christ for forgiveness. We are not regenerated as the result of faith. We exercise faith as the result of being regenerated. Consider that just prior to those verses in Ezekiel 36.25, God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. Jesus hearkens back to this in John 3, 3 and 5, giving us another illustration of regeneration. He said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless one is, a, is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. So regeneration is like having one's hardened heart of stone replaced with a softened heart of flesh, but it's also like being reborn. Birth, then, is analogous to regeneration, but 
people don't choose to be born physically. <laughs> so how then are they going to choose to be born spiritually? It just doesn't make sense. Besides, John 1.13 says that believers were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Regeneration, being born again, is God's work, resulting in faith, not man's will resulting in being born again. Going back to John 8, which we looked at just a second ago, consider verses 42 to 45. These verses read this way. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I proceed forth and have come from God. For I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I am saying? It's because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. You need to look at those verses very closely. Verse 42 says that one will love Christ only if God is one's father. Verse 43 says one will not understand Christ's words because one cannot hear it. Verse 44 says the unbeliever's father is the devil and wants to carry out the devil's desires. And since the devil is the father of lies, and since Christ speaks the truth, since we want to carry out the devil's desires, we won't believe him. One whose father is the devil and wants to carry out his desires, which is all unbelievers just as we believers once were, is not going to understand and turn to Christ because he doesn't want to. Only once we are born again by the will of God are we his children, and only then will we follow Christ. Now what we've looked at so far is sufficient, in my opinion, to prove beyond reasonable doubt that the Bible teaches that man is totally depraved, so in love with sin and such a hater of God that no one would ever choose to turn to Christ. Only once God supernaturally causes us to be born again, only once he replaces our heart of stone with a heart of flesh, will we turn to Christ. I could end the episode now, and I think I would have sufficiently made my case, but there's more. We looked at Jesus' use of birth as an analogy for coming to faith in Christ. Paul uses another analogy which just as strongly points toward the total depravity of man, that of death and resurrection. We read a moment ago that Paul called unbelievers children of wrath in his letter to the Ephesians. Well, he does much more than that. Ephesians 2, 1-6 reads, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Paul reiterates this analogy in Colossians 2.13, and, and here's the point. How can one who is dead play any part in his being raised from the dead? Consider when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead in John chapter 11. In verse 43 of that chapter, Jesus cries out, Lazarus, come forth. Now I ask you this, did Lazarus have the option of refusing Jesus' command? Of course not. You see, just as people do not choose to be born physically, and thus do not choose to be born spiritually... Neither do people choose to rise from the dead physically, and thus do not choose to rise from the dead spiritually either. Jesus wills it, and people are regenerated. Period. 
The analogies of rebirth and resurrection serve as compelling evidence that people do not choose of their own volition to turn to Christ without first being regenerated by God. But there's still more. Consider carefully what Paul says in Romans 8, 5-8. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. We very clearly establish that the unbeliever's mind is set on the things of the flesh and is hostile toward God. And here Paul says such a mind does not subject itself to the law of God and can't even do so, nor can it please God. Exercising faith in Christ most certainly pleases God and is a subjection to the law of God, but the unbelieving mind is incapable of doing that. Paul puts it another way in 1 Corinthians 2, 12-14, writing, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. So the natural man, that is, the unregenerated unbeliever, doesn't accept the things of God, indeed cannot. How could such a person turn to Christ? It just doesn't make any sense. No, the unbelieving heart must first be softened and regenerated, and only then will the natural man, who is now a spiritual man, turn to Christ. Again, it's my opinion that at this point I've sufficiently made the case. But I'm going to add one final nail in the coffin, what I think is the most powerful proof of man's total depravity. John chapter 6. Thomas Ice has said of preterism, when you talk to a preterist, get ready to hear the words this generation at least eight dozen times if you have an extended conversation. Well, similarly, I would say that when you talk to a Calvinist, get ready to hear the words John chapter 6 eight dozen times if you have an extended conversation. Not once have I seen even a remotely plausible interpretation of John 6 that offers an alternative to Calvinism. In fact, in and of itself, without everything that we've already looked at, I think it would prove my case. But as I read this passage, keep in mind everything we've looked at so far. John chapter 6 verses 41 to 44 reads, Therefore the Jews were grumbling about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. They were saying, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down out of, out of heaven? Jesus answered and said to them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. See, the Jews were grumbling. They were skeptical of Jesus' words, not believing him. Jesus tells us in verse 44 why they didn't believe him. Because no one can come to Jesus unless the Father draws him. The implication is quite obvious. The disbelieving listeners had not been drawn. Why can no unbeliever come to Jesus unless the Father draws him? Well, because as we've seen, men hate God and are his enemies from conception. We want nothing to do with God. And this passage confirms what we've been, uh, what we've been seeing leading up to it. That coming to Jesus, Jesus is the result of a prior inward work on the part of God. One of drawing us to his Son. Consider the way he puts it in verses 64 to 65. But some of you do not believe me. For Jesus knew from the beginning which ones didn't believe, and he knew who would betray him. 
Then he said, That is why I said that people can't come to me unless the Father gives them to me. Here Jesus explicitly indicates that the reason some listening did not believe him is because the Father had not given belief to them, or had not given them to the Son. The NIV renders verse 65, No one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. The New American Standard renders it, unless it has been granted him from the Father. However you read it, it it really can't be any clearer. No human being can turn to Jesus Christ unless the Father draws him to the Son, granting that one the gift of belief. Now, it should be noted that Arminians who recognize the total depravity of man taught in this passage see the drawing and granting spoken of differently than Calvinists, and, you know, we'll get into that in future episodes when we look at some of the other five points, but Arminians and Calvinists, we stand united upon this passage in opposition to the heresies of Pelagianism and semi-Pelagianism in affirming that the, the, the total depravity of man, that if God does not first perform an inward work in the unbeliever's heart, the unbeliever will never turn to Jesus Christ. So, let's summarize the biblical evidence we've looked at just to beat the dead horse, and then we'll begin to wrap up. Why did the early church justifiably condemn Pelagius as a heretic when he taught that man had the free will to turn to God? Why did the early church justifiably condemn semi-Pelagianism as heresy when it taught that men are born sinners but still have the capacity to turn to God? Why did the Synod of Dort largely agree with the Remonstrants on one of their five articles that men are totally depraved and unable to turn to Christ without first being regenerated by God? Because as a result of Adam's disobedience, all his descendants are born preeminently sinful, Romans 5.19. Because the intent of man's heart is only evil continually, Genesis 8.21. Because the human heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick, Jeremiah 17.9. Because the unbeliever's mind and conscience is defiled and to them nothing is pure, Titus 1.15. Because nothing good dwells in our flesh, Romans 7.18. Because there is none who seeks for God, Romans 3.11. Because those who do evil from birth cannot start doing good, Jeremiah 13.23. Because no one calls on God's name or strives to lay hold of him, Isaiah 64.7. Because we were born enemies of God, alienated from him, Romans 5.10 and Colossians 1.21. Because we hate God, Romans 1.30. Because we're by nature children of wrath, Ephesians 2.3. Because... Unbelievers seek to do the will of their father, the devil, John 8.44. Because men are born dead in sin, Ephesians 2.1 and Colossians 2.13. Because those whose minds are set on the flesh are unable to subject themselves to God and cannot please him, Romans 8.5-8. Because the natural man cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God, 1 Corinthians 2.12-14. Because no one can come to Jesus unless the Father draws him and grants him belief, John 6, 44 and 65. But as we've touched upon here in this episode, and as we'll dive more deeply into in future episodes on the other points of Calvinism, thanks be to God that he has chosen to replace our hardened, stony hearts with softened hearts of flesh, resulting in our obedience, Ezekiel 36, 26 to 27. Praise God that by his grace he has caused us to be born again from above, John 3, 3 3-5, not by our will, but by his, John 1, 13. 
Merciful is he who has loved us with his great love, even while we were dead, and made us alive together with Christ, Ephesians 2, 1-6, and thank the Lord that he has drawn us to his Son and granted us belief, John six forty four and 65. Listeners, friends, family, brothers, and sisters in Christ, I understand why some of you might object to Calvinism, why you might find uh, fight it tooth and nail. I certainly did after becoming a believer when I was first presented with it. I remember when my friend challenged me with the doctrine, and at the time my wife was an unbeliever and I couldn't accept the possibility that she was so utterly in love with sin, such a child of her then father the devil, that she would, that she would never turn to Christ for forgiveness, and that God might not have chosen her. And certainly questions of fairness and justice abound, and and we'll look at all of those in future episodes. So, I mean, I get all of that. But I think that if you can come to accept what the Bible says about human nature, God's grace will take on a whole new meaning for you. A far more profound realization of God's mercy and compassion will bowl you over and wash over you like a flood. You'll become grateful that God is free to save since man is in bondage to sin. You'll thank the Lord that your decision to place your faith in Christ was in His hands and not your own, and that the same is true of your as-of-yet-unsaved loved ones. What once was no doubt a very moving song about God's amazing grace will touch your heart in a way it never has before, causing tears of joy and gratefulness to pour down your cheeks afresh every time you hear it. Truly is amazing God's grace that saved a wretch like me. See you.